0: This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Northwest Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth according to the New Testament. Come worship with us Sunday mornings at 1030 at 1708 Elm Springs Road in Springdale, Arkansas. We're starting a two-part study this morning. I'm, I'm going to split this study into two parts, in case you're wondering, and the second half of it will be the fourth Sunday. I'll skip next Sunday, and then the following Sunday we'll try to deal with the second part of this but uh it's a lesson that uh, i think is very important for us i preached it on the internet recently on wednesday nights it needs to be again given here because we need to become familiar with the material and i believe that the material in this makes a very good home study if any of you are inclined to want to try to evangelize somebody and teach them the gospel this certainly would be a good method in order to do that and uh So let me explain it a little bit further. I'm going to add some detail here uh, this morning that we didn't put on the internet broadcast, but I want you to have it, and uh, so we'll deal with that as well. Let's open with uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 to 4. You'll find that inside in the scripture typed out. One of the pages here in in the packet that I gave you I don't have time to deal with. And uh, so we'll not use that sheet of Scripture. So don't let the volume of Scripture uh, unnerve you too badly. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 to 4. Paul said, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Over in Mark 16 now, verse 15 and 16, Great Commission, in Mark's record of it, he records Christ as saying this, And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. So let's talk about the gospel for just a minute. What is the gospel? The word gospel means good news. Good news. And then Paul defined what the good news is in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, I'm declaring unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, how that Christ died for our sins, According to the scriptures that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now usually the death of a person is not good news. You know we recently had a death. We've lost Sister Marilyn and we had her funeral service this past week. And it was a very sad time for many of us. We weren't ready to gear up this dear sister here on earth. The Lord was ready to receive her into rest. But we weren't ready to part with her because there's great sorrow. And she was a wonderful lady, and and we all loved her very much. Usually death is not good news, is it? Not for us here on earth. But Paul said that the fact that Christ died for our sins is good news. This death brings good news to us. And the world needs good news. I remember a song several years ago recorded by an artist named Ann Murray. Maybe you remember the song. And she talked about good news and how there was such bad news in the world. You know, woke up this morning and kids had the morning news shown on, show on. And Brian Gumbel was talking about the fighting in Lebanon. And she went on and on with things that were tragically going, into the, going on in the world. And uh, she talked about how she longed to come home and turn, on, turn home entertainment devices and, and find good news there that somebody saved someone's life, that somebody did this or that. We, we long for good news, don't we? And Paul said this is good news. Good news. Jesus said, I want this gospel preached to every creature. Go preach it in all the world and preach it to every creature and the one that will believe this good news, this gospel, and be baptized, I'll save him. And so the Lord wants every individual to hear the good news. Since the good news is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, I want to break that down with us in this study. Talk about each one of these individually. This morning, all I have time for is the death of Christ. That's all we'll talk about. I don't have time for the burial. I don't have time for the resurrection. And why those are such good news, and we'll talk about that in the second part of the study. But for this morning, I want to deal with the death. Christ died for our sins. I raise the question then, Why? Why did Christ die for our sins? And the simple answer is that the justice of God demands this. God's justice demanded that someone die. You see, God punishes every sin. I wish everyone had a concept of this, that God has to punish sin. He just does. That's that's justice. Now we don't do that in this country. We have government officials, for example, that, that will pardon criminals. We have governors that often issue a pardon to somebody that a jury has said is guilty and rightfully so. And they're serving a sentence, yet that sentence is commuted and they're pardoned. Presidents do this before they leave office, don't they? They pardon criminals and they turn them back on their streets. Sometimes terrorists and murderers are even turned loose upon us again when they should be serving for the crime that they've committed. That's not justice. And yet those governor's pardons and those presidential pardons are are an actual pardon. And there's nothing on their record. When a president pardons you, you don't have a record. When a governor pardons you, there is no record. You're just as clean as anyone on the streets. God cannot operate that way because he has to punish sin. And He's taught us this numerous places in the Bible. In Hebrews chapter 2, read with me, verses 1 to 3. The Bible says, Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. So under Moses' law, this word spoken by angels, and that's a reference to Moses' law, that was delivered into the hands of mediator Moses by the angels. And uh, every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense and reward. Numbers 15 gives us an example of how that happened. We've read this many times. The Bible says in verse 32 of Numbers 15, that while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man that gathered sticks upon the Sabbath day. And they that found him gathering sticks brought him unto Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. And they put him in ward because it was not declared what should be done unto him. And the Lord said to Moses, The man shall be surely put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones without the camp. And all the congregation brought him without the camp and stoned him with stones, and he died as the Lord commanded Moses. Here's a man that despised Moses' law and died without mercy. And we have many, many examples in the Scripture of this happening. God's justice is the reason Jesus died for our sins. Now, we're prone to look at ourselves, each one of us, and think, "Well, you know what? I'm not that bad a person." You know what? I have uh, I've never uh, I've never murdered anyone. I've never sold drugs. I don't use drugs. I've never been a thief, I've never stolen anything. I'm not a prostitute. I'm not a pimp. I'm not an extortioner and we'll look at all these things that others have done that we're not, and may be prone to say about ourselves, well, we're really not that bad a person. And we need to get out of that kind of thinking, because we are a bad person. We have been a bad person. In James chapter 2 and verse 10, James said, for whosoever shall keep the whole law, and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all. Let's understand that when it comes to the law of God, If we want to be saved by that law, justified by that law, we have to do it perfectly. No slip-ups, no mistakes, no breaking that law, not even once. Because whoever keeps the whole law and breaks fins in one point, James said is guilty of all. Because once we break it one time, we have to understand this, we're condemned. If I tell a lie one time, and I keep God's law perfectly thereafter, I'm a liar. And the law demands that I be punished for telling that lie. And that's got to be paid for under God's system of justice. That's how he operates. And he can't just say, well, you know, Pat's done a lot of good here and there. He's done this and he's done that and I'm going to let that go. He can't operate that way. He doesn't. And so he has to punish sin. Now the problem you and I have, we're all sinners. And you may not be a prostitute, or a pimp, or an extortioner, or a drug dealer, a drug user, a thief, or any of those things, a murderer. But you and I have broken the law of God. In Romans 3, now verse 10, the Bible says, as it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. Verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's every one of us. And then we read of course about sin in Romans 6 and verse 23 for the wages of sin is death. So what's the penalty? Let's say for this one lie I tell. What is the penalty for that? Death. I can't afford to pay that, can you? This death that he's talking about right here is punishment in the lake of fire for eternity. I can't afford to pay that. Yet that's the penalty for what I've done. See, this is the dilemma God has when He deals with sin. He's got the whole human race guilty of violating His law. He's imposed the penalty of death upon it. And He's going to demand that the penalty be paid. And we can't do a thing about that. And you see, if you and I try to pay that debt, we're going to have to go to hell and pay it for eternity. Is that what you want? It's not what any of us wants. We need, we need some kind of a sacrifice. We need, we need some, someone someone to die in our place. And this is what God was trying to teach Israel for centuries in the sacrificial system that he set up there at Mount Sinai with that priesthood system. <clears throat> if you'll look at the notes that I've given you here, go back in them. Here all about four pages from the back, I guess, somewhere toward midway, you'll see a a drawing of the tabernacle. There at Mount Sinai, Moses was given a pattern to make this tabernacle. I want to look at it with you just a moment. And so I've I've got a picture of it here. I have a scripture down at the bottom I want to read there on that page, Hebrews chapter 9. Let's read verse 1 to 5. The writer says, Then verily the first covenant also had ordinances of divine service, and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick, and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant, and over it the cherubims of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. So there's your concept of what the the tabernacle may have looked like in the wilderness. Let me describe it here as you look at the chart with me. There was a fence all around the outside that left a courtyard inside the place. It always faced the east. They set it up to the east. All of this was portable. The fence was made of posts, and they had, uh, they had sockets that they fit down in, so they carried these huge sockets. And they'd set those on the ground, and those posts would, would go down in those sockets. And those, those posts were all around, and then they, they draped certain kinds of curtains over them to make a fence all the way around it that kept the courtyard hidden from view and of course left left that open courtyard. Inside that fence, if you want to call it that, was the tabernacle itself, which was a huge tent. And as I said, all of this was portable. It folded up and that's why you see staves or poles run through these pieces of furniture because they they hand carried those all around through the wilderness for 40 years as they wandered. All of this was carried by by the Levites. There in the courtyard uh, on the east end down here was the altar of burnt offering. That would have been one of the first things you saw. Right here is where animals were sacrificed. They were burned and sacrificed. Burnt offerings were offered unto God on this. Made of brass, a huge altar, of course had coals underneath and grates on the top. And you'll see the horns on on the frame around it there. It was a very ornate looking thing. Between it and the tabernacle itself was a laver. We likely get our word laboratory here, but this is where the priest washed his hands and feet. He could not enter that tabernacle without washing. It's a fit symbol of baptism. You and I have a sacrifice; we have a baptism by which we become, uh, you know, which we enter in. Once you went into the tabernacle itself, it had two sections, two rooms. There was a veil or a curtain strung from top to bottom, separating these two rooms. And in this first room, which was called the holy place or the sanctuary, on your left hand was a golden lampstand. The King James will say candlestick, but actually it burned oil. This was made out of a beaten piece of gold, very ornate, with all kinds of carvings in it. And God had given skill to the laborers that made these things. But there were seven branches on this. And this is what gave the light inside this place. Over on the right side was called the table of showbread. And every week on the Sabbath day, twelve loaves of bread re- replaced the twelve that were on the table. The priest ate the week old bread and they changed out. One of the loaves for all of the twelve tribes of Israel. And this was set out and shown before the Lord there. All of these pieces were overlaid with gold. You never saw the wood. But that table was overlaid with gold around the the top, the legs, all of it, so that you never saw the wood. Just an absolutely valuable and beautiful piece. And then, of course, there were rings in the four corners of these where they were carried with long poles called staves that were run through them. And these were borne by Levites and priests and stuff on the shoulders as they marched through the wilderness. Right in front of that veil was the altar of incense. And every morning and every afternoon and many times on other occasions, incense was offered there to God, symbolizing prayers going up for a sweet savor to God. And the priest would go in and perform those services inside. This veil, this this room in the very back, it was called the Most Holy Place. No one went in that room but the High Priest. That's it. No one saw it. It was entered one time a year. One time, because in that room's where God dwelt. There was an Ark of the Covenant there. That's the Ark, or the artist concept of it. And it's overlaid with gold. It's made of a certain kind of wood, but overlaid with gold inside and out. The very lid on it that had the cherubs resting on it was called the mercy seat. Mercy seat. We get our Greek word propitiation from this same word translated mercy seat. On each end of that lid or that covering, that mercy seat, were two angelic beings. They were cherubs that faced each other with wings spread. And the glory of God came down and filled, rested between the wings of the cherub. And this is where God was. Now God looked down continually on this ark. And what was inside the ark? Well there was a pot of manna that the Lord wanted gathered up from their wilderness journeys and preserved. And they kept that manna a long time inside this ark. There was also Aaron's rod. Remember it had budded overnight on one occasion. A dead piece of wood had just sprung and budded and they kept Aaron's rod in this. And also there were the two tables of stone inside that had the Ten Commandments. That's why it's called the Ark of the Covenant. And these Ten Commandments had been violated continually and were violated continually by the children of Israel. So as God dwelt above, between the wings of the cherubs here, He looked down continually on a broken law. One time a year, God let the high priest come into this room, into his presence. And he didn't go in there without blood. And he went in very carefully, and nobody was in any part of this tabernacle while he was in there with God. It was called the Day of Atonement. And a sacrifice was offered unto God for sins on this day. He required it. The 14th day, or the 10th day of the 7th month, They offered that, the Day of Atonement. I have a scripture on that that I want you to turn on the next page and read with me. I want you to see what God required. Now this was done every year. (coughs) It's a little bit of a long reading, but let's read it. Because maybe you've never read about the Day of Atonement. You need to understand what was done. And you'll understand better the need for a sacrifice when you understand what was required under the law of Moses. In verse 1 of Leviticus 16, The Lord spake unto Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, that's Nadab and Abihu, when they offered before the Lord and died. The Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, now Aaron's the high priest, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil, before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not. For I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. Thus shall Aaron come into the holy place with a young bullock for a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat, and he shall have the linen breeches upon his flesh, and shall be girded with a linen girdle. And with the linen miter shall he be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore shall he wash his flesh in water, and so put them on. And he shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats for a sin offering, and one ram for a burnt offering. And Aaron shall offer his bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself and for his house. And he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him and to let go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. And Aaron shall, shall bring the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and shall make an atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself. And he shall take a censure full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord, and his hands full of sweet incense, beaten small, and bring it within the veil. And he shall put the incense upon the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony that he die not. And he shall take of the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward. And before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle of the blood with his finger seven times. Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering. That is for the people and bring his blood within the veil, and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock, and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. And he shall make an atonement for the holy place, because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel, and because of their transgressions and all their sins, so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanness. And there shall no man in the ta- be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation, when he goeth in to make an atonement in the holy place, until he come out, and hath made an atonement for himself and for his household, and for all the congregation of Israel. And he shall go out unto the altar that is before the Lord, and make an atonement for it, and shall take of the blood of the bullock, and of the blood of the goat. And put it upon the horns of the altar round about. Now we're talking about the burnt altar out in the courtyard. And he shall sprinkle of the blood upon it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and hallow it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. And when he had made an end of reconciling the holy place and the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat. And he shall send him away by a hand of a fit man into the wilderness. And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited. And he shall let go the goat in the wilderness." And Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of the congregation and shall put off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. And he shall wash his flesh with water in the holy place and put on his garments and come forth and offer his burnt offering and his burnt offering of uh, of the people and make an atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering shall he burn upon the altar. And he let let go the goat, for the scapegoat shall wash his clothes, and bathe his flesh in water, and afterward come into the camp. And the bullock for the sin offering, and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make an atonement in the holy place, shall one carry forth without the camp. And they shall burn in their fire the skins, and their flesh, and their dung, and he that burneth them shall wash his clothes and bathe his flesh in water, and afterward he shall come into the camp. And this shall be a statute for, forever unto you, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, ye shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether it be one of your own country or a stranger that sojourneth among you. For on that day shall the priest make an atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. And it shall be a Sabbath of rest unto you, and ye shall afflict your souls by a statute forever. And the priest whom he shall anoint, and whom he shall consecrate to minister in the priest's of, priest office in his father's stead, shall make the atonement, and shall put on the linen clothes, even the holy garments. And he shall make an atonement for the holy sanctuary he shall make an atonement for the tabernacle of the congregation and for the altar, and he shall make an atonement for the priest and for all the people of the congregation. And this shall be an everlasting statute unto you <clears throat> to make an atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. And he did as the Lord commanded Moses. <clears throat> now that was done every year. Every year they came into this tabernacle. And this was the very service that God wanted rendered. And he didn't want it changed or altered. And so you can see the great ritual that was involved here. As sacrifice was made for sin. What's God doing here? Teaching man that it's going to take a sacrifice in order to pay for the sins that he's committed. That God cannot forgive them. And it's going to take the life of innocent animals here in this case. And the problem here is these animals can't take the sin away. The blood of a bullock and the blood of a goat is not sufficient to take care of our problem for sin. Man had to learn this too. Because you see, the life of an animal, no matter how many animals you may have, will never equal the life of a human. And since the payment for sin is death, The death of an animal cannot pay for the the sins of a human being because their life is not the equivalent. It never can pay the debt. It's not sufficient to do it. You couldn't create enough animals to pay the debt for one human life because all of those animals together don't have the value of one human life. So God's teaching us that it took a great sacrifice, something far more valuable than every human life, to pay the debt that we owe to God for sinning, every sin, whether it's just one or many. And there has to be a death take place, but the death that has to take place has to be the death of someone far more valuable than those for whom the sacrifice is offered. That's what he's teaching us here. I can't die for your sins because my life's no more valuable than yours. I can't pay the debt. All I could do would be go to the lake of fire and pay my own debt. Because I've sinned, somebody's got to die. Because you've sinned, somebody's got to die. We've got to understand that fact. And then when we read the scripture that says it's good news that Christ died for our sins. Now we can see why that's good news. That means I don't have to die for my sins. That means somebody's paid my debt. And that's the beauty of the gospel, and that's why it is the good news that it is. You know, God's always required blood. While we're here and looking at this, let's just look at the next page. The one that's titled, Eating of Blood is Forbidden. Because God's always required blood to make an atonement for sin. And we're forbidden to eat blood. Back in Leviticus 17, now verse 10 to 16. Whatsoever man there be of the house of Israel, or of the strangers that sojourn among you, that eateth any manner of blood, I will even set my face against that soul that eateth blood, and will cut him off from among the people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it unto you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. It is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. Therefore I said unto the children of Israel, No soul of you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger that sojourneth among you eat blood. And whatsoever man there be of the children of Israel, or of the strangers that sojourn among you, which hunteth and catcheth any beast or fowl that may be eaten, he shall even pour out the blood thereof and cover it with dust, for it is the life of all flesh. The blood of it is for the life thereof. Therefore I said unto the children of Israel, You shall eat the blood of no manner of flesh, for the life of all flesh is in the blood thereof. Whosoever eateth it shall be cut off, and every soul that eateth that which dieth of itself or that which was torn with beast, whether it be one of your own country or a stranger. He shall both wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the even. Then shall he be clean. But if he wash them not, nor bathe his flesh, then he shall bear his iniquity. Blood then is the life of the body. It's the life of the flesh. And what's the penalty for sin? Death. So what has to be shed? Blood. Now that's God's system. You and I didn't design that system. That's His system. He requires that life be given in order to pay for sin. Death occurred, bloodshed. And so man's forbidden to eat the blood. It's holy to God, it's the life of the flesh. In Acts fifteen, nineteen to twenty, if you'll remember they had a a, a large meeting at Jerusalem on on this occasion, Judaizers have come down out of Judea, and they're teaching Gentile churches down in uh, Antioch and, and other places, that unless they're circumcised and keep Moses' law, they can't be saved. And Paul and Barnabas, along with Titus, went up to Jerusalem. This was 50 A.D., 20 years after the Lord's death. And they went up to Jerusalem to discuss this matter of whether the law can be bound on us Gentiles or not. And they decided, no, it can't but four things were bound upon all of us. Acts 15, 19, here they are. Wherefore, my sentence is that we trouble not them, which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols. That means things that have been sacrificed to idols. Don't eat the meat of anything offered to an idol, in other words. And from fornication, and from things strangled, and from blood. Those four things. Meats offered to idols, fornication, things strangled, and blood. In Hebrews 9, 22, almost all things are with the law purged with blood. Listen. And without shedding of blood is no remission. In Hebrews 10, verse 1 to 4. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things... "...can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins." So here at this tabernacle then when this was offered once a year there was a remembrance made of people's sins. Their sins were not actually forgiven. They were not remitted. They were not paid for by the blood of those animals because it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. So God just remembered the sins every year and He would, when the sacrifices were offered it just it tabled, we might say, his anger. It it appeased it for a time. But a year later he demanded remembrance again because the sin was never gone. It was still on the record of all that had committed it. Other sins were added to it. It wasn't rolled forward, as you hear some people say. Well, sins were rolled forward and rolled all the way to the cross and things like that. The Bible never speaks in those terms. It speaks of the fact that sins were remembered every year. They were never forgotten by God. The scapegoat that was taken out into the wilderness, remember, the high priest would lay his hands on the head of that goat, symbolically transferring his sins and the sins of Israel off on that animal. And then some man appropriately read, led that out into the wilderness where no one dwelled and turned the goat loose. This was the symbolizing of sin carried away from God's presence never to be remembered. That's what the goat symbolized. And so God was teaching Israel, and teaching all of us, a sacrifice needs to be made that can carry sin away, that can take it away out of my presence, that can fully pay for it. And he used the blood of these animals, these bulls and goats and things that couldn't take away sin in order to try to get man to understand that message. Christ died for our sins. Now go back to Hebrews 2.9 with me in the list of scriptures where you were reading. Now that you see that concept of the tabernacle and such things. The writer says, but we see Jesus <clears throat> who was made a little lower than angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God should taste of death for every man. God had a plan for all this sin, and before before the very foundation of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ was a dead man in God's mind. Because before He ever created man, he he, He knew man would sin. He knew he'd have to deal with the sin problem. And God in His great wisdom and knowledge already formulated a plan Because he knew he'd have to deal with that. And God thinks ahead. God sees the future. He saw the time man's going to need a sacrifice. If I create human beings, they're going to break my law. They're going to sin. Sin cannot abide in my presence. I have got to have a plan to redeem them, to make an atonement for those sins. I've got to be able to forgive them and be just in doing it. And God, in His great wisdom and all, formulated in His mind a plan to sin What we know is the Word, that we know is Jesus Christ. Because in heaven you have the Father, you have the Word, you have the Holy Spirit. We call this the Godhead. There is one nature, God, deity, that resides in three, that manifests itself in three, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And God's plan was at some point the appropriate point in the future, to send the Word down Himself. God would come down, because all of these have deity, and God would become a man. He would dwell in flesh like ours, and He would become the sacrifice for sins, because man couldn't pay this debt. No animal God had created could pay it. Nothing on earth could pay that debt. There needed to be life given, life more valuable than all human life combined. And there was one person in the universe that could pay it. And his name is Jesus. Christ died for our sins. Let's talk about Christ. Jesus came to this earth as a man. Philippians 2, verse 5-8. through Let's talk about Jesus and who He is. Paul said, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross." Jesus then was in the form of God. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. There it is. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. There's the plan that God had. Now, there's never been a time when Jesus didn't exist. In Micah five verse two. Read with me. Micah predicted the birthplace of Christ. Thou Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. There's never been a time when this Word didn't exist, because this Word is God. And God, you see, is everlasting. He's just as as eternal back the way we've come, as He's eternal the way we're going. There's never been a time when when He didn't exist. David once wrote in Psalm 90, "'Lord, Thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations.'" Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. From everlasting to everlasting. And that's why Jesus is called the great I Am. He just is. He's the ever-present one. He's always been. He always will be. And when you speak of him, you say, I am. Because he just exists. He always is. He needs no one to make Him exist because by Him all other things exist. And He's eternal. In John chapter 1 now, verse 1 to 3, we read more about this Word. John said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So when you think of the creation, all things were made by who? Jesus. When the Jews killed Jesus, they killed the life giver. They killed their creator. That's what's ironic about it. They took the life of the one that had given them life. All things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. And then in verse 14, the word became flesh. And dwelled among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This word came down then in that virgin born baby there at Bethlehem. The Son of God. Because the Holy Spirit had caused miraculously Mary to become pregnant without intervention of man. And what was formed in that womb, this word inhabited was born of that virgin Mary had never had sexual activity till after the birth of Christ. she and Joseph never came together till after then. And Jesus was born of that virgin there at Bethlehem. God's son, the word come into this world and made flesh. We read of him in Hebrews 1 verse one to three Hebrews 1 verse 1 to three. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory, and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat on the right hand of the majesty on high. There's a picture of Christ. He has his Father's glory, and he's the express image of his person. This word. All things were made by him. By whom also he made the worlds, the Hebrew writer says. In verse 8, the Father speaks to him and says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. He is called God. He is God in the flesh because we need a sacrifice for sin. And if you think your sin is not all that bad, God has gone to a whale of a price to take care of it. Because you see, God has to keep integrity before men and angels. If He just up and pardons our sins without any payment for the penalty He's imposed, that's not justice. And uh, justice has to be done. And so the plan was to send His Son to this earth. 1 Peter chapter 2 now, verse 20 to 21. I want you to think about the scapegoat. When the sins were laid over on that animal and he was led off into the wilderness. This is what Jesus did at Calvary. In 1 Peter, Peter said in verse 21 that Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in His steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in His mouth. Who when He was reviled, reviled not again. When He suffered, He threatened not, but committed Himself to Him that judgeth righteously who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the cross, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Sin that day at the cross was all laid over on one person, on Jesus Christ. The Bible says he was made sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This was God's plan to take the sins of all mankind Lay them over on one person, Jesus Christ, his son. And there at Calvary, pour out his wrath on his only begotten son and let him shed his blood, which is the life. To pay the debt over here, the penalty of which is death. To step in and pay that for every person. He can do that because his life is so valuable. He is the Son of God after all. His blood, His life is more valuable than all human life put together. Just as one human life is more valuable than all animal life put together, it will sufficiently pay the debt. And so what the blood of bulls and goats cannot do, the blood of Jesus can do. Because it's life and it's precious life, the life of the Son of God. That's the plan. Hebrews 9, again, almost all things are with the law, purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, Peter writes, for as much as you know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And so it took the blood of Jesus to pay the debt. I want to close this morning with a scripture in Romans three. I could preach a whole sermon from these three or four verses right here. There's a whole sermon here, but I want us to understand this passage thoroughly. Paul said in Romans three twenty three for all or excuse yeah Romans three twenty three for all have sinned, and come short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of Him which believeth in Jesus. (laughs) Let's analyze these verses. Verse 23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's the human race. There's our dilemma, and the wages of sin, of course, is death. All have sinned. But he said we're justified freely by His grace. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So he's speaking of the redemption here, of Christ's blood. How our debt is paid for. How we are redeemed by that blood. And he said that God has set Jesus forth to be a propitiation. Through faith in his blood. Now this word propitiation is mercy seat. Same Greek word. So when you think of the mercy seat on the ark. Think of Jesus, because when we have faith in His blood, He's our mercy seat. He's our propitiation. He is a, an atoning sacrifice that appeases all the anger that God has against us for our sins. God's mad. And something's got to remove His, His anger. You know, civilizations of, of men through the years have always tried to, they've had a concept of a deity Every tribe, nearly anywhere somebody's on earth, they have a concept of a god, don't they? A deity. And without exception, nearly every one of them think that they've offended that deity in some way. And the most primitive tribes of man have offered uh, through the the centuries sacrifices trying to appease whatever their concept of God is. They perceive that there's a god angry at them. Sometimes it's a human sacrifice. They make up their own rituals, but they're all all striving for one thing. They want to appease this deity that they believe they've offended. You and I have offended deity. There is deity mad at us. And that deity loves us. And that deity went to a great expense to take care of a problem we couldn't solve. We have no ability to pay this debt. And there's one thing in this universe that will pay it, and that's the blood of Christ. That's the only thing, and that's what it does here in Romans 3. That's what he's talking about. Look at 25. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation. That word means an atoning sacrifice. Uh, A propitiation through faith in his blood. So when you and I have got faith in the blood of Jesus Christ then Jesus becomes our propitiation. He takes care of appeasing the anger of God upon us because we believe in His blood. God set Him forth as a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness, to declare God's righteousness. And that word righteousness there is not talking about God's personal righteousness, though He is. It's talking about justice. That might be a better translation of it here, to appease God's justice. See. He set forth Christ to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness or his justice for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. When, when God forgave David back here in the Old Testament, he proved himself just at the cross. Probably angels wondered, what's he doing forgiving this man? He's guilty of murder and adultery. Yet he sends Nathan the prophet and says, the Lord's put away your sin. How can God be just doing that? That's likely what angels were thinking. But God knew something the angels didn't know. He knew Calvary was coming. That David's sin, while he had forgiven it, would actually be paid for on a wooden cross outside Jerusalem by his son one day. And when Jesus died, God would show his righteousness or his justice for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Then Paul said to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness or his justice, that he might be just, and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. So over here today, when you and I have faith in this blood and obey the gospel, God then forgives us and proves back at Calvary that he was just in doing that because he's never let anyone's sins go. Listen, any sin that's ever been forgiven will be forgiven because of this wooden cross. And it'll be paid for by the lifeblood of Jesus or it'll never be paid for unless you and I pay it down here in the lake of fire, but it's going to be paid for. Christ died for our sins. Paul said that's good news. And second part of this, in two weeks, we'll talk about the burial of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and why that's such good news. This morning, that's good news. Christ died for our sins. We're going to take the Lord's Supper in a minute. And I hope when we do, every one of us that have been redeemed by that blood will be thankful to God. And that we'll remember it properly this morning as we take communion. If you've never been redeemed by the blood, if you've never been forgiven, it's going to take faith in Jesus Christ. Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now do you see why? You can't get rid of your sins without Jesus. You're not going to make it to heaven without him. You might as well yield to him because if you fail to do that, you're going to have to pay the debt for your sins down here in the lake. And you'll never get through paying. The good news is Christ died for our sins. If you need him this morning, need to come and obey him in baptism. Need him in the forgiveness of sins as an erring Christian. Need him in any fashion. We're not in a hurry. If you need the Lord, come forward this morning as we rise and sing the invitation song. Would you come? We hope you enjoyed this teaching from God's Word. If there's anything we can do to help you in your walk with Christ, send us a message at facebook.com slash cfcnwa. To find more sermons, look for us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and like our Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and God bless.